0: Please bow your heads with me this evening before we begin. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. O Lord, we worship thee, for thou art the giver of all life, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We know it comes from thee. We also know that understanding, wisdom, and judgment comes from thee and the fear of thee. Grant us now the spirit of illumination, In the knowledge of thy word, that we might rightly divide the word of truth, that thy people might be instructed, whereas they might know how they ought to live and walk here in this world. Grant, O Lord, that we might understand what the will of the Lord is, especially regarding this most controversial subject that is so often abused and rested in thy word. We know that you've given your word, O Lord, that it must be studied line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be taken and snared and broken. But yet, Lord, we know that those who would understand your word and learn doctrine must study that word the same way, here a little and there a little. Grant us that ability, O Lord, to our salvation here in this world, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we bear, amen. I told you this morning that the sermon this evening would be a little different than normal and it shall be, but we've got some ground to cover before we get to that part of it. So please bear with me, we're going to have to cover some ground quickly. I want to deal this evening with the subject of the Christian and alcohol. Or what role should beer, wine, whiskey, liquor play in a Christian's life, if any? What does the Bible have to say about it? Does the Bible condemn it? Does the Bible condone it? Does the Bible recommend it? What does the Bible say about a Christian and his use of alcohol? Now, most conservative religionists teach that absolute abstinence is required by the Word of God. That's the kind of churches, those are the kind of churches I was raised in. To be a member of the church I was raised in that my father was the pastor of, you had to agree to a church covenant before you joined the church. And the church covenant had one thing to say specifically about your private life. And that is that you wouldn't touch any intoxicating beverages. Many conservative religionists make it an absolute prohibition for you to ever touch alcohol, and they try to use the scriptures to teach that. Churches, ministers, schools, universities will take a stand on that issue when they won't on other issues. Now, we have a university in this town that trains over a thousand preacher boys every year that makes a stand on alcohol, and if you're you're caught drinking a beer, you're sent home from that school. But now, if you believe that sprinkling is okay as a form of baptism, that's okay, because we accept Presbyterians. There they are, being partial in the Word of God, accepting different modes of baptism, but not accepting a student with a can of beer. Now, we want to look at the Word of God and find out what it says about a can of beer in a Christian, or any other form of alcohol. I know just to say the can of beer, if my mother was to hear that. Now she could take it. She could take it now, but a few years ago to even hear the words coming from the pulpit would be too much for her. Let's go to the Bible, ignoring what you may have been taught, ignoring what you may feel, and let's look at what the Bible says about intoxicating beverages. The booze issue has been a very popular one to give preachers something to preach about from the pulpit and not the way I'm going to preach it this evening (laughs) a lot of men have built their ministries around preaching against booze some of you have heard of a man named Billy Sunday he played baseball for the Chicago White Sox back in the early 1900s he was a Presbyterian evangelist supposedly there are 300,000 names in the book of life that would not have been there without Billy Sunday now all of you know better than that But that's what it's claimed for Billy Sunday. He built his ministry against the saloons. He was an anti-saloon preacher. We have moral majority preachers today whose preaching is on social issues only. You know, they're preaching against ERA, they're preaching against abortion, they're preaching against divorce and broken homes, and all of those things are good to preach against, but not as a mainstay of your ministry. Billy Sunday and these other preachers, Bob Jones, Sr., and others at the turn of the century preached against booze. They'd go into town, set up their tent, and preach against the saloons. And as a result of that preaching, in 1919, our country, the Congress in our country, established the 18th Amendment to the Constitution which said you could not buy, use, transport, or sell alcoholic beverages all the way down to one-half of 1% alcoholic content. That was based on this preaching. That amendment was passed with a greater majority than any amendment that's ever been passed. But it only lasted 13 years. It was rescinded in 1933. And I thank God that Billy Sunday lived to 1935 to see the day when it came off the books. The fruit of a ministry like that shall not stand because it's not godly fruit that was laying pharisaical burdens upon people that God didn't intend to have laid there. There is not probably another subject where the word of God is rested so clearly as with this subject, and that's why I'm dealing with it now. I preached on this subject two and a half years ago in another church, and I believe you heard those tapes, but I want you to go over it again in order to give you a, an issue for which you can bring up with others to show them how men do not know how to study the Bible and how it can be studied to arrive at a very clear, moderate, balanced position. This issue is an excellent one for you to bring up with someone that you're just trying to introduce the gospel to. If you introduce the doctrine of salvation to someone brand new, you're asking for too much nine times out of ten, because it overthrows everything they believe. But if you bring up this issue, this is an issue that if you convince them from the word of God that your position is correct and true, you're not requiring them to overthrow everything they've believed and been taught. When you go after the doctrine of salvation, you're asking them to change their concept of God, man, and how men and women get to heaven or hell. When you deal with a subject like this, you're not asking them to make quite that level of a commitment, but you sure are getting them started because you'll show them how the word of God must be studied. And once you lay that foundation of how the Word of God must be studied, you can then go from there because you've convinced them of the power of studying the Word of God the way it requires to be studied by blowing away all this froth that's made out there in the religious world that God condemns, even a drop of one-half of one percent, which would be one-proof alcohol. If this book right here, the 1611 authorized version, is your only criteria... For determining the relationship of a Christian to alcohol, the issue is easily settled. Now, if you believe that God only inspired original manuscripts, and that those original manuscripts have been lost over the last 4,000 years, you have no criteria, and you will end up with some position like the 18th Amendment. But if you go with this book, which is the basis of my whole sermon this evening, that this book is the Word of God, It's easy. It's easy once you settle for this book, if you believe that these are the very words of God. When we look at the issue of the Christian and alcohol and realize that most of the religious world absolutely condemns any use of alcohol, it's important to remember how careful we ought to be whenever we, as Christians, place over other people a rule of conduct. We need to be careful that we never place a rule of conduct over men that God didn't place there. Now, there are a number of places we could turn to. But Jesus Christ told his apostles to go and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. They weren't to leave anything out. They were to teach all things that Christ had commanded the apostles. And they were to teach whatsoever he had commanded. They weren't to make any up on their own or teach from tradition. What the apostles were to go and do is teach only what Jesus Christ taught. We better be very careful when we say, you better not touch a drop of alcohol, if we're to say that, or if someone else says that, or if we establish any other rule, that we have a strong Bible basis for it. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 to see briefly a group of people who didn't believe that, who thought that they could make rules, And standards of conduct for men that weren't based on scripture. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, we have Christ condemning the Pharisees for laying aside the commandment of God, verse 8, and holding the tradition of men. They laid aside God's commandment and made their own, the washing of pots and cups and so forth, which God had never required. They had added that. And because they had added that, they had made the commandments of God of none effect. Because they'd made their own commandments and set aside the commandments of God. That's what takes place in verses 1 through 13. In verses 14 through 23, the same group of men are being addressed by Christ. And Christ teaches them there that nothing that enters a man can defile him. And that's a powerful principle for you to have under your belt as we look at a subject like this. Nothing that enters a man can defile him. It's not dirt that might come from off your hands onto your food and into your belly that causes any harm. It's the heart within your body that causes the harm. All evil comes from your heart. It doesn't come from the outside in. Many times I speak the same way of the television set that we have in our homes. The television set itself is not evil. The programming in general, and hear what I'm saying, the programming in general is not evil. That's not the sin. A partially nude woman on the television is not sin. It becomes sin when your heart looks and lusts after that. The evil is in your heart. And so it is with any subject. You're going to see that very clearly. It's not what enters into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. Anything that enters in goes out into the draft. But it's what comes out of a man. That's what defiles a man. Christ here condemns the Pharisees against setting up their own traditions, their own rules, their own standards of conduct. And we need to be very careful when we establish thou shalt not." Very careful. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 2, which is where our beloved Apostle Paul deals with the same subject. Colossians chapter 2. And he gets very plain here with the same type of teachers. Beginning at verse 20 of Colossians 2, Paul said, Wherefore, if ye be dead from the rudiments of the, with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances. If you're dead from worldly religion, from man-made religion, why, as the living in the world, are you bringing ordinances back on you? That's what Paul's saying. Verse 21, Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. You touch that, you're going to perish. You drink that alcohol, you're on your way to hell. You say, no one has ever said that. If you want to visit my home this week, I'll show you in my office as much literature as you can read in a 24-hour period where men teach that. That anyone who drinks alcohol is on their way to hell. That's what they teach. Which all are to perish with the using. You touch that, you're going to perish. You taste that, you're going to perish. You handle that, you're going to perish. After the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worship and humility and neglecting of the body? If you can forego things like alcohol, if you can forego the pleasure of a glass of wine with a meal, that indeed has a show of wisdom in will-worship. It shows that you have a strong will and are able to put away with that particular thing. It indeed shows that you have humility false humility, and it shows that you neglect the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. But Christ teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God's given us richly all things to enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean the devil. You know better than that. But I'm going to show you that wine is one thing he did create for us to enjoy. Those who teach touch not, taste not, handle not, and anyone who does those three things is going to perish Yeah, they make a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. But God has never called us to neglect the body. That's false religion. That's false religion, thinking the body is something sinful so that to receive physical pleasure or physical gratification is ungodly. That is a heresy. That is a lie. God expects us to enjoy things physically. He's given us the senses to enjoy things that He's created for us. Now, you know that those things are to be enjoyed within bounds. Need I even say that? You all understand that. The first thing that God very clearly says about the Christian alcohol is that drunkenness is absolutely condemned. Drunkenness is absolutely condemned. First of all, Paul said, Be not drunk with wine. That's an imperative command. That's something he's telling you not to do. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't use wine to an excess where you would become drunk. In first Peter chapter four and verses three and four, Peter wrote to some Christians and said to them, Don't let it bother you that those that you use and I'm paraphrasing now, this is Crosby's revision. Peter said, don't let those that you used to hang around with and use an excess of wine with, don't let them bother you now that you no longer go to the same excess. See, those Christians that Peter wrote to had changed their behavior. They used to be engaged in revelings, banquetings, licentiousness, and an excess of wine. You can go read it, but now they're no longer that way. A Christian does not use an excess of wine. A Christian is not a drunkard. Paul tells us plainly in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, a drunkard shall not inherit the kingdom of God. A drunkard shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that applies both to the local church and to the heavenly kingdom in different ways. It applies to the local church in that if you are guilty of public drunkenness, you will be excluded from this congregation as quickly as you would if you were guilty of public idolatry. It's a sin that Paul tells us not to company with A man who is a drunkard that calls himself a brother. They're to be put out and to be separated from. Now what does it mean to be drunk? You can preach different ways. Now I could preach and condemn drunkenness and we could go on. And one thing I've tried to do as your pastor is go a little step further and let's try to define what drunkenness means in the Word of God. Does it mean when you drink two glasses of wine and you feel sleepy that you're intoxicated and therefore you're guilty of drunkenness? Does it mean when you drink, and I'm using this as an illustration only, and everyone here should understand that, if you were to drink three glasses of wine and feel quite merry and feel quite relaxed, would that be drunkenness? What is drunkenness? Can we define it with the Word of God? and it's very important. If someone's to be excluded from a congregation for drunkenness, we better be able to define it. If you're to use wine, and those who are in offices, not much wine, but those who aren't using wine but not to an excess, what is an excess? What is an excess of wine? The English word drunk is defined as one who has drunk intoxicating liquor to such an extent that he has lost steady self-control. Intoxication is defined as the action of rendering stupid, insensible, or disordered in intellect with a drug or alcoholic liquor. The condition of being so stupefied, of being stupid and your intellectual abilities being disordered, where you can't think orderly. That's how the dictionary defines it. Now, I want to make a statement right here. I'm going to define drunkenness with the Word of God. I'm going to define it with about 50 passages of Scripture, but I'm going to do it quickly. Don't worry. But it's not going to be the same definition that the laws of South Carolina may have on their books for you on the highway. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be more liberal than those laws. But if you are caught on our highways and publicly incarcerated as driving under the influence or drunken driving, you will be excluded from this congregation. Because in the eyes of the community, you are a drunkard. It is commonly reported that there is a drunkard in our midst. Do you see the difference? I want to make that very clear. Now, do you believe the Word of God can tell us what drunkenness is? Let's look. What I'm going to do is give you some characteristics of those individuals who are drunk, what the Bible associates with with drunkenness, so that we can know what drunkenness is in God's opinion. Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to show you that God gave wine, God gave strong drink for the benefit, the cheer, the gladness of man. It's a gift of God to man. So let's go to the same book and the same God and see how he describes an abuse of that good gift. First of all, and I'm going to cover these quickly, you will have to look up the references later. I'm going to tell you the phrases that describe the characteristics that go along with drunkenness, and you can study some of these out later. There's one passage that summarizes most of them all together. Babbling speech. If you are unable to control your speech, and I don't mean you might say things that you wouldn't otherwise. I mean you're saying things that sound unintelligible. Unintelligible speech. That is what the apostles were accused of in Acts chapter 2 when they were speaking in tongues. They were accused of being drunk. There's a Bible example of what drunkenness is as it's used in the Word of God. Two, nakedness. Nakedness is associated with drunkenness. If you were to uncover yourself in a way that you would not at other times and reveal your nakedness in a way that you would not at other times, because of the influence of alcohol, you have one of the characteristics of drunkenness, and that is revealing your nakedness. Several passages of Scripture to show that. Noah planted a vineyard when he got off the ark drank of the fruit of that vineyard and was drunk and was (coughs) naked in his tent and several others. Third, vomiting and sickness is associated with Bible drunkenness. Vomiting and sickness is associated with one who is drunk in Scripture. Staggering and reeling movement. If you are unable to walk under control, and you've seen that test a thousand times, if you are unable to walk steadily, but are reeling and staggering around, that is drunkenness, as described in several passages in your Bibles. Talking to oneself, if you've lost so much control that you're not aware of anyone around you and you're talking to yourself, some of you don't need alcohol to do that, but but if you are talking to yourself because of the influence of alcohol... You have one of the characteristics of drunkenness. If you are deceived into mocking and angry conduct, if your conduct becomes such that it mocks you, you turn into a fool. You turn into foolish behavior and or angry. You've heard of guys who like to bust up tables when they get rowdy when they're drunk. That's angry conduct. And when a man turns himself into a fool because he's under the influence of alcohol, he's mocking himself. Because later he's going to regret the way he behaved. That's being deceived into mocking and angry behavior. That's a characteristic of one who is drunk. Poverty is a characteristic of a drunkard. All other things being equal, a drunkard will be a poor man. Several verses that prove that. He that loveth wine shall not be rich. The drunkard shall come to poverty several verses in the book of Proverbs. Poverty, given other things being equal, will follow those who are given to too much drink, and excess of wine. Loss of judgment. If you are unable to make sound decisions and exercise sound judgment, and you make decisions that you would otherwise not make, radically different, you lose your sense of perception and ability to perceive a situation and offer sound judgment on how one should behave in that situation, you are guilty of one of the characteristics that follow drunkenness and last of all drunkenness requires long tarrying you don't get drunk by a couple drinks if you read the bible you'll find out that those who get drunk tarry long at the wine they rise in the morning and drink it all day till wine inflame them it's something that you have to spend a time at and work at to be scripturally drunk now let me run through those quickly babbling speech, nakedness, vomiting and sickness, staggering and reeling movement, talking to yourself, deceived into foolish, mocking, and angry behavior, poverty, you're poor, you don't get your bills paid on time, other things being equal, loss of judgment and the ability to perceive a situation for what it truly is, and long tarrying at the wine, those are signs, characteristics of one who is drunk. And the reason I give that Bible definition is when we look at the Word of God and what God intended the use of alcohol for, you're going to see that it moves in that direction. But it doesn't come anywhere near that. But it moves in that direction. Alcohol is a depressant. God intended it to be a depressant. It relaxes you and it's intended to do so. And we'll see that. But those are some of the characteristics that the Bible gives us with a number of scriptures proving each one of those points on what will follow Bible drunkenness. And if you can find others, show them to me. If you can find others, show them. I want to be right on this particular point. But if you'll go with me to Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs the 23rd chapter, we shall see most of these summarized in one short passage of scripture on what God considers to be drunkenness. Proverbs chapter 23, beginning at verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who's getting into fights for no reason? Just listen to what we're reading here. This is the Word of God. Every word is put here by the Holy Spirit. And it's important for our understanding... "...who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder, thine eyes shall behold strange women." and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This is a description of one who tarries long at the wine. Woe, sorrow, contentions, babblings, wounds without cause, redness of eyes, beholding strange women, uttering perverse things from your mouth, sick without being sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. Loss of your senses. Now those of you who have ever encountered a man who's totally drunk, he has no feeling. I mean, why, why do you think when they're involved in 50% of the car accidents in this country, that they're usually not the ones getting hurt. Usually they're not the ones getting hurt. They're totally relaxed when they're totally drunk. They're beat, and I felt it not. Solomon was right up to date, wasn't he? That's a, that's a passage that summarizes a number of the things that the rest of the Bible teaches about what drunkenness involves. But now I want to check that with this statement. Drunkenness does not mean that you're totally out of control. You can still have some sense of things around you remaining and still be drunk. Don't get me wrong. I'll give you a Bible verse to prove that. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. David gave Uriah the Hittite drink and made him drunk. But Uriah the Hittite Still had some judgment left. Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 13. And when David had called him, that is Uriah the Hittite, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Remember Uriah the Hittite had said to David, listen, When Israel and Judah are out in the battlefield and my captain is there, when Captain Joab is there, how can I come home and lay with my wife? How can I come home and enjoy the pleasures of my home? I'll sleep on the doorstep. And David needed Uriah the Hittite to enter that home and sleep with his wife, but Uriah the Hittite wouldn't even when he was made drunk. He still had some judgment left, even though David had caused him to drink to drunkenness. A wise man, my friend, is neither going to be a drunkard nor associate with drunkards. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 20. Proverbs 23:20, 20. A wise man will not associate with those who are drunkards. That verse says, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. A wine-bibber is one who's a drunkard, a habitual drinker of intoxicating liquor. A wine-bibber is a drunkard period. That's what, how the English Dictionary defines the word. That's going to become important when we look that that's what Christ was accused of being, a winebibber. A winebibber is a drunkard. A winebibber is not one who simply uses a little wine. A winebibber is a drunkard. Be not among bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. See, eating flesh is a good thing. God gave us richly all things to enjoy. But when you're a righteous eater of flesh, you've gone beyond you're now guilty of the sin of gluttony. And that's a sin. Wine God gave to man, but going beyond its proper use and abusing it is what is condemned for Christians. I've taught you plainly on Christian ethics. The Bible condemns drunkenness. In every case, no. Is there a time, is there a time for you to be totally drunk? Yes, and I dare say that most of the men, people in this room have had that experience. You just may not have done it with alcohol. Anyone in this room who's had surgery has been totally intoxicated before they went under the surgeon's knife. Christian ethics. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Anesthesia totally takes away your judgment, your perception, you utter. (laughs) Have you ever talked to a nurse that works in a recovery room? She hears a lot of things. You utter perverse things. You 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 lose total control of your physical senses. Could you walk a straight line? Can't even lift a finger. Totally intoxicated, for a purpose, a righteous purpose, and that is the saving of your life. Now, what if you were out on a battlefield in the Civil War, when there was no anesthesia? What would you do? Two bottles of gin. You don't have a choice to put that man out unless he was, unless he wanted to uh, take it right on and feel every movement of that knife. You can see the difference, and I've taught you that before, that God expects us to use wisdom and prudence in dividing between a necessary situation and an unnecessary situation. Let's look now at the fact that the Scriptures do support the use... Of alcoholic beverages. Psalm 104 is the first reference we'll look at. Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, beginning at verse 14, we have these words of the psalmist in describing the Lord. He begins this psalm by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, Thou art very great. And then he goes on to describe the things God has done and what makes God great. Verse 14 He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Psalm 104.15 gives you three things that God created and he tells you their end purpose. Bread to strengthen man's heart. I could give you a 15-minute. That would probably exhaust my knowledge of the use of bread in your diet and how fiber, protein, E vitamin E, and iron in wheat bread strengthens your heart. Why do they call it the staff of life? Ever heard bread called the staff of life? Is that scriptural? It strengthens man's heart. God gave bread to strengthen man's heart. God gave oil to make his face to shine. In the Middle East, it's a very dry climate, and they would anoint themselves with oil. After having been out all day in a very dry climate, their skin was very dry, they would anoint themselves with oil and cause their face to shine. That's why God gave oil. God gave wine for what purpose? What's the proper end use of the gift of wine? Makes glad the heart of man. Wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. How does wine make glad the heart of man? By causing man to relax and partially forget his miseries. We'll see that. I'll show you. David is not the only one that wrote these words. They're written a number of other places in your Old Testament. I don't have time to look at all of them. But let's look at a couple. Let's look over at Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 7. Zechariah 10:7. In Zechariah 10:7 we have these words, "And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord." That's Zechariah 10:7 teaching the same thing. In Judges chapter 9, in verse 13, the book of Judges, chapter 9 and verse 13, we have these words in a parable that was given. Judges 9, 13. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? If you were to go read the context of Judges 9, it's a parable. But wine here is speaking, and it's saying, should I leave my purpose of cheering the heart of God and man? You say, how does wine cheer the heart of God? Is there a way that wine cheers the heart of God? Yes, when it's poured out in drink offerings to the Lord, as it was in the Old Testament. It was poured out in drink offerings. You gave a drink offering to the Lord. Please think about the words. A drink offering to the Lord. And then men used the same substance for themselves to cheer their own hearts. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Solomon here, speaking of the, God, the things God has given to us to enjoy under the sun in this life, in this world, as he describes it. Natural things. Look what he says. A feast is made for laughter. And wine maketh merry but money answereth all things does money answer all things naturally speaking yes it does yes it does naturally speaking money answers the things the problems of life they don't satisfy it on a, to a man who's born of God and has a new man but it answers to all things you have a problem you can usually buy your way out The things that are under consideration here in this verse. What's a feast made for? Is a feast made for sorrow? No, a feast is made for laughter. What is wine for? To make one merry. Come back a few pages now to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. What does it say? Keep strong drink from him that is ready to perish? give strong drink to him that is ready to perish. There's a man who's about to die and he's in a great deal of pain. Help him out of his misery. Give him strong drink. And wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Now notice the difference. Strong drink to a man that's perishing, but wine to those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Does wine accomplish that? Yes wine does. Wine is a depressant that can that relaxes you and can help you forget your misery and your poverty. It is not the cure for a man's life. That is why we're told in Ephesians 5:18 be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit, the motivating influence in our life that should cause joy. And love and happiness and peace is what? The Holy Spirit of God. Not drunkenness, wherein is excess. But how does God expect you to be happy? How does God expect you to have joy, to be glad and to be merry in this world? Simply by sitting around and reading your Bible? Did God ordain your happiness and your joy and forgetting your poverty and leaving your misery Did He design you to accomplish that by sitting around and reading your Bible? No, He gave you means to accomplish that. Does the woman provide an answer to many of man's needs? You bet. And God gave that. How about work? Does work, does a hobby, do things that are beautiful, provide a means to forget your misery and your poverty and to appreciate something? Yes. And wine is one more of those means that God has given to man. You say, that's hard for me to believe that God is actually saying give, strong, give wine to him that is of a heavy heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Let's see if you don't already do some of that. When you come home from a day's work and you're very frustrated, your nerves are taunt, you've been under pressure all day long. You sit down to what? And an hour later, you are much more relaxed than you were when you got home. Was that an hour of reading your Bible? Was that an hour of prayer? Or was that a great big evening meal? What does that evening meal do for you? It intoxicates you partially. A heavy meal causes you to relax. It's a depressant, just like drinking is, because it takes the blood... To digest that food, it takes it from your brain. That's why after a heavy meal, you're tired. You relax. It accomplishes the same thing, and you forget some of that frustration and pressure you were under during the day, simply from a meal. Have you ever used a contact, ActiFed? What does it tell you on the box not to drive? Have you ever used one? Don't you dare try to pick on somebody who drinks a couple glasses of wine because they want to relax after a hectic day. If you've ever taken a contact, an Actifed, aspirin, sleeping pills, tranquilizers, or other things that we take that are God's means, if used properly and within bounds, to relieve ourselves of physical and mental stress and pressure. He gives us means. One of those is a heavy meal. One of those is wine. Now there's a merry feeling in being drunk. You can read about Nabal, Bath, uh, Abigail's first husband. He was drunk and it says his heart was merry within him. That's a merriness that God didn't intend. Hopefully you can see the difference. One comes through drunkenness, absolute stupor, and one comes through the proper use of a thing within its place. Now I'm not recommending its use. I'm not telling you to use it. And I'm not saying I use it. What I'm saying is that God created it for that end, and God made it just like he made bread and oil, and the day you can condemn wine is the day you're going to have to condemn wine and oil right along with it. That's the whole purpose of what I'm saying. What what are some other references that we can see in the Word of God where God told us or condoned the proper use of alcoholic beverages? Deuteronomy 14 is one that you should always remember. Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. Deuteronomy 14, this is one you'll always want to remember. In this verse we're told about a tithe that should be made once a year by the Israelites by taking a tithe of their produce, converting it to money, traveling to Jerusalem or some other designated city where God expected to be worshipped, and here's how they were to worship. And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. There's drinking wine and strong drink before the Lord in his worship. Not just wine, strong drink, if you believe your Bible, as part of the worship of God. This is the most neglected verse in all the Word of God when it comes to this subject. If you're dealing with someone who condemns alcohol, I remember pointing this one out to my father for the first time. He said, let me read that again. (laughs) I've never read that verse with understanding. Just reading through those, the books of Moses, sometimes you'll miss some things that are rather important. Very important to remember that this verse is the one that recommends the use of strong drink in the worship of God. My friends, Christ drank wine. You can prove that from the fact that he was accused of being a wine-bibber. John the Baptist kept the Nazarite vow of no wine and no strong drink. Jesus Christ was said to be very different from John the Baptist in that he did drink. Therefore, they called him a wine-bibber. Now, they called him a drunkard, not because he was drinking Welch's grape juice, but because he was drinking wine. They called him a wine-bibber for that. He was very different from John. John had total abstinence. Jesus Christ did not. It says in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus Christ did drink. Those at the Corinthian church were drunken in the Lord's Supper because they were using wine in their service. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul told Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach's sake. Paul told deacons not to be given too much wine. What does that imply? I mean, the very verse that appears to be a condemnate look at it. It condemns much wine. What does it allow? Some wine. Many passages condone the use of wine in general with the word wine. We don't have time to look at all of them tonight. They run from one end of your book to the other. The use of wine. Now, the main argument that's going to be raised any time you raise one of those verses is this. The word wine only means grape juice. It's an unfermented juice. It's not the fermented wine as you're talking about. If you take your King James Version and try to show some of these verses where men drank wine, they will say that that word wine in the Hebrew, the original manuscripts, does not mean a fermented or intoxicating beverage. Now, that's a long argument that we could spend some time with, but they're relying on two things that they can't prove. First of all, that the... where are the original manuscripts to know what that word was in Hebrew or Greek? No one has them. Second of all, if they could establish that they had the original manuscripts and the word that was used for wine, how was it used? How do they know it meant unfermented or fermented? They're relying on two giant assumptions. And if you admit those two assumptions, you overthrow the whole word of God. See, the word wine in the English language has never, and I say never, And I mean that without exception, ever meant unfermented grape juice. Never! Now wine can be applied to other beverages other than fermented grape product. It can be elderberry wine or apple wine. You've heard it used that way. But wine never, and I say, mean never, has been used for an unfermented juice. You can look that up in your Britannica Britannica Encyclopedia or the Oxford English Dictionary, which are both standards, from England, where this book was written on the use of those words. If you were to look up every occurrence of the word wine, you would find out that their argument falls flat on its face. I mean, my friends, Melchizedek offered the same wine to Abraham that Noah and Lot became drunk with. If you were to take your Strong's Concordance and look in the back, behind each word, it gives you a number that coordinates the Hebrew or Greek word from which that English word was supposedly translated. Assuming their argument for just a minute, if you'll run some of those references, you'll find that Melchizedek, (laughs) the type of the Lord Jesus Christ, used the same wine that Noah and Lot used. You'll find that David and Esther, both godly individuals, Use the wine that we're not to look upon in Proverbs chapter 23. You'll find that Christ and Timothy used the same wine Paul said, that if it caused a brother to offend, he wouldn't drink it and he wouldn't eat of meat. See, so it doesn't make any sense. Total contradiction if you try to divide between the uses of the word wine when it means unfermented juice and when it means fermented. When you look up the word wine in your Bible, When you find it used and the context describes its effect on men, you will find it describing drunkenness. The word wine. Noah, as early as Genesis chapter 9, drank wine and was drunk in his tent. There's that word wine. We know from its context, let alone its English definition, that an intoxicating beverage was being used. Paul warns often about being given too much wine. Does that mean he recommended that deacons should not drink too much grape juice? Christ gave the story of the good Samaritan who poured wine into the wounded Jew's wounds. Would you like to pour grape juice into a man's wounds? He'll sue you for malpractice when he's through. You've you've seen it yourself in older pictures or movies where alcohol has been poured into a wound because drinking alcohol, has been poured into a wound because nothing else was close by that would provide a purgative for that wound. One thing they'll do is when you show them that the word wine does mean a fermented beverage, an intoxicating beverage, they'll say, yes, but new wine is not intoxicating. All you got to do is go to Acts chapter 2 where the apostles were accused of being drunken because they were filled with new wine and there are a number of other scripture references. Let me give you a few facts about alcohol and see the handiwork of God in the production of wine. Grapes contain about 80% water and 15% sugar and 5% other minerals that vary slightly by climate. That's why you get different wines from different countries around the world. 80% water, 15% sugar. The skins of those grapes, the skins of all grapes, are covered with microorganisms that function as yeast it's a leaven, it's a yeast when those grapes are crushed the sugar mixes with the yeast naturally causing fermentation you have to boil freeze or chemically halt the process it will happen regardless you've seen grape juice made possibly where it's boiled or preserves made where it's boiled so that it doesn't ferment to kill that yeast doesn't kill the sugar. You know that from the taste of the stuff later. Grapes crushed. The microorganisms on the skin of the grape are mixed with the juice, which is partially sugar. The sugar and the yeast combine to form alcohol. When the alcoholic content in grapes reaches 14%, it kills the yeast so that no further fermentation can take place. You can't have a natural wine with a greater alcoholic content than 14% can't make it. You've got to perform some other operation in order to increase the alcoholic content of that wine. And many wines will be less in content than that because they're less in sugar in different places around the world. God made the wine and God made it so that it stopped the fermentation process at approximately 14% alcoholic content, the highest you can get, and it stops. This 50 Proof, 60 proof, 80 proof, 100 proof, stuff that you find has been doctored with quite a bit. That is not the way things happen naturally. Natural wine production stops at about 14% alcohol. Now, I have just about run out of time, but I'm going to give you 15 minutes of what I wanted to spend some more minutes on this evening, and we'll continue this next week. What we've covered so far is this. First of all, I showed you the problem that there are so many who claim to believe be believers and readers of the Bible who condemn any alcoholic use, any use of alcoholic beverages. Second, I showed you the importance of being careful in establishing a law governing Christian conduct. Third, I showed you that the Bible does condemn drunkenness, and I tried to give you an idea of the serious nature of drunkenness. God isn't talking about being relaxed with a glass of wine or two with a meal, or without a meal. Then I showed you that the Scripture does support the use of wine from another number of different standpoints. And that the use of wine in the Bible is referring to a fermented intoxicating beverage. Because that's what the English word means and that's what the Bible context shows it to mean. Now what I'm going to do is hand out to you one of the many pamphlets that I have read and studied on this subject and the reason for this is My purpose is this, to show you how Scripture is perverted, and to give you an idea of how men will rest the Scriptures, and to give you a little lesson in reading through some of these verses in way of Bible study for your own benefit. As I pointed out earlier this evening, there's hardly a better subject to bring up with some who have never been exposed to Bible study. They may be religious. They may be a church member, but they may not be uh, experienced in studying their Bibles and have not seen their Bibles opened and used. And this is a subject and this is a pamphlet that can be very useful in showing men how to read their Bibles and to see through false assumptions by false teachers. If you're looking at the front of this pamphlet entitled 75 Bible References on Drinking, look at the second paragraph. This man who is a pastor of the First Baptist Church in Sheffield, Alabama, says this, One has only to examine the Bible to find abundant references condemning the use of alcoholic beverages. In fact, if the preacher is to stick to his Bible, preach the whole truth, and be fair to the Word of God, he must preach against alcohol. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? He says that there's abundant references condemning the use of alcoholic beverages. And now, supposedly, this pamphlet's going to give us 75 of them that we can look at. Let's read the next paragraph. In the following list, and that's inside, are scores of direct references comprising a total of 162 verses. This is more scripture than will be found in the subjects of lying, adultery, swearing, stealing, Sabbath-breaking, cheating, hypocrisy, pride, or even blasphemy. You can see where he places drinking, don't you? It's the most heinous crime of all. Those passages which use the word wine in reference to sweet grape juice or other juices or to the grape itself are not included here. Now, how did he know which passages those were? Read this thing. How did he know that? He said they're not included here. All three words have the same Greek name, although the Hebrew names distinguish between the fermented and the unfermented wine. I'll offer that man, I'll, I'll offer that man a thousand dollars and any man who can come and show me that there's any distinction in the Hebrew words that show a basis for difference between fermented and unfermented wine in the Old Testament scriptures. You cannot show that. From this fact (laughs) has arisen the confusion in our English translations which has puzzled the minds of Christians as to the apparent sanction of alcohol in certain verses. From this fact. See, he's assuming things, and he's letting you assume them. He doesn't give one bit of proof here. He just tells you the Hebrew words are different, and he's wise enough. First of all, he's rich enough to have preserved those original manuscripts, and he's wise enough to define those Hebrew words that haven't been used for thousands of years. And he assumes that and calls it a fact. Now let's turn the page and have a little fun. I told you this morning, and we'll only spend a couple minutes because we're out of time. I told you this morning that we read in Psalm 2 that god shall laugh he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and the lord shall have them in derision the lord loves to laugh and deride his opponents let's take a few minutes and just look at some of the statements we find in this uh, in this list of abundant references that condemn the use of alcoholic beverages first of all he puts down genesis chapter 9 verses 20 through 26 that's the account of noah coming off the ark planting a vineyard and being drunk and being naked in his tent. The first drunkenness and the attendant immoral behavior. Does that verse have anything to do with drinking wine? Does that verse have anything to do with drinking wine? No, it does not. That passage of Scripture condemns drunkenness. That passage of Scripture condemns drunkenness. Will you please follow me logically for just a minute? Wine no more causes drunkenness. Wine does not cause drunkenness. Wine no more causes drunkenness than guns cause murder. Wine no more causes drunkenness than women cause adultery. Wine no more causes drunkenness than food causes gluttony. Wine no more causes drunkenness than men cause sodomy. Wine no more causes drunkenness than beasts cause bestiality. Wine no more causes drunkenness than property causes stealing. Wine no more causes drunkenness than money causes covetousness. Wine no more causes drunkenness and the stars in heaven cause idolatry. Wine has never made a man drunk. If you know what I'm saying when I say that. Just like a gun has never killed a man. It is either the intentional abuse of that gun or the unintentional misuse of that gun, both of which are either due to ignorance on the part of a human being or sin. Did God create the woman as a gift to man? Yes, he did. Can that woman be abused in in adultery? Yes, she can. Is the woman the cause of the adultery? Not on your life. The adultery is in your heart, and so is drunkenness. This, this list is entitled 75 Bible References on Drinking. The first one has nothing to do with drinking. It has to do with drunkenness. Then he goes to Genesis chapter 19. He skipped Genesis 14, where Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine for Abraham. Interesting. You know this man sat down with a concordance to come up with this. Oh, that's right. That was sweet grape juice. I'm sorry. That was sweet grape juice. Sorry, it's the same word in Strong's Concordance that was used in the first reference and in the second reference. It's number two, Genesis nineteen thirty through 38. Drinking results in Lot's debauchery of his own daughters. Did drinking result in Lot's debauchery or did drunkenness result in Lot's debauchery? We read in Genesis chapter 19 that Lot didn't know when they lay down or when they rose up. Does that sound like he had any judgment left? That sounds like he was totally out of it. Drinking didn't cause that. Excessive drinking caused that, if you know what I'm saying. Excessive drinking. Moderate drinking doesn't cause that. Excessive drinking, the abuse of the thing. Number three, Genesis 27:25. Isaac was drinking when he mistakenly blessed Jacob. Now, my friends, did Isaac mistakenly bless Jacob because he had been drinking? Or because Jacob came in there with goat skin all over him and lied to his father. Why doesn't this same gentleman put down verses 28 and 37 of the same chapter where Isaac's blessing upon Jacob was to increase his corn and wine? (laughs) Don't you love the word of God? (laughs) Look, he uses Genesis 27-25 as a condemnation of drinking wine and that Isaac was misled because he drank wine as he drank the meat meat that Jacob had prepared for him. But then Isaac turned around and blessed Jacob with corn and wine in abundance. Number four, Luke 10, 9. And please turn there. This must be an important one. It says an express command not to drink. We best turn there. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9. You say, Pastor, you have spent... The last week of your time trying to find the silliest pamphlet I've ever read on the subject of alcohol. Oh, no, I haven't. I got the one that had the most scripture and that was the easiest to read. I could get you some others that would take you through a maze for you to try to understand and are just as bad as this, that are worse than this. This man nowhere says in here, I believe, that men will be in hell because of drinking. I have those that do say that. Leviticus 10.9 this pastor says an express command not to drink. Let's read it. Verse eight. And the Lord spake unto Aaron saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink. We have it. There it is. The condemnation of wine and strong drink. Do we? Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Thou nor thy sons with thee. When ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation lest ye die it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that ye may put a difference between holy and unholy who was not to drink wine nor strong drink aaron and his sons when were they not to drink wine and strong drink when they went into the tabernacle were they to drink wine at other times the best wines of israel numbers chapter 18 verse 12 you we don't have time to look at them Numbers 18.12, Deuteronomy 18.3 and 4. The Israelites were to tithe a tenth of their best wines for the use of the priests. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. And he brought forth wine for Abraham. This was to put a difference between the holy and the unholy for those priests in setting a standard for religious worship in Israel. Once they were outside of that, they could drink wine. Look at number 5, number 6-3, the vow of the Nazarite. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of the Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. The point that's often made from this passage is, see, here's a man who truly wants to separate himself to the Lord's worship. Then they go on and read verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. See, there's a man who wants to be dedicated to the worship of God. He'll put away wine and strong drink. Well, now, if this man's going to... The Nazarite vow only lasted a few days. It was a very short vow. Now, men like Samson and John the Baptist were Nazarites from their mother's womb. They were perpetual Nazarites. But the Nazarite vow was a very short period of time. Now, if a a man had to vow for this period of time that he wasn't going to drink wine or strong drink, what was he doing before that? Drinking wine and strong drink. Look at Numbers chapter six and verse twenty. Same chapter. I know this verse doesn't appear on your list, and I'm sorry he left it out for some reason. Verse twenty: At the end of the period of the Nazarite vow, the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is holy for the priest. With the wave breast and heaved shoulder, and after that the Nazarite may drink wine. Verse 20. Why didn't he show that? Same chapter, same subject, the Nazarite vow. When you're out of the vow, you drank wine. Let's take it a step further. Why did this man simply refer to drinking in this passage? Do you know what else the Nazarite had to do? Well, in verse 3, we're told that he couldn't eat raisins. You're going to separate from raisins in order to be more devoted to the worship of God. That's you can't eat moist grapes or dried. Verse five, he can't have a haircut. So I guess we all ought to grow our hair as long as we can if we're to be dedicated to the worship of God. And verse seven, he can't even go to his parents' funeral, can't attend funerals anymore, can't eat raisins, can't have a haircut, and you can't go to your parents' funeral if you're to use this passage at all. You laugh. You laugh, isn't the word of God precious? He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. God has said he'll make the wisdom of this world foolishness. Now, you can go to seminary, you can get a Ph.D. in Oriental languages, and you can try to study the Hebrew and Greek words that provide the basis for our wine and strong drink, and you can come up with a position like this. And you can sit here as a mechanic, a shopkeeper, a janitor, whatever, and you can read your King James Version and blow away all the fog. Deuteronomy 21, 20. Let's look up number 6. Do you notice that we have skipped from Numbers chapter 6 to Deuteronomy 21? Where did Deuteronomy 14, 26 go? Thou shalt drink wine and strong drink before the Lord. Why isn't it here? Do you think he saw it when he used his concordance? Why isn't it here? Now, men wouldn't lie from a pulpit. Men wouldn't lie in print. Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is a little trickier, grammatically. Deuteronomy 21, verse, beginning at verse 18, we have Moses dealing with the law prov- provided for a rebellious son that he was to be stoned to death, and the procedure that was to be followed. In verse 20, the parents were to bring that son to the elders of the city and say, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now, this gentleman says drinking leads to stubbornness, rebellion, and gluttony and brings dishonor to parents would you please show me grammatically how that drinking is the source for all those problems 1st doesn't say that at all it just says the son has multiple problems the son has multiple problems, it doesn't tell you where the cause and effect are, let's read the word of God with understanding this our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard this man changes the word drunkard to drinking, that drinking caused all this. That verse doesn't say that if we're going to use the word of God rightly. Number seven, abstinence assures a closer walk with God. That's what he says. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. Abstinence assures a closer walk with God. Now everyone here wants a closer walk with God. I mean, if he's, if he's got the truth... We ought to put away wine for those of you who may use it. Deuteronomy 22, Moses here is reminding the Israelites of all that God had brought them through during their 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 3, the great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs, and those great miracles, yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. And from that he concludes that abstinence assures a closer walk with God, because God kept them from wine and strong drink, that, for the purpose of, ye might know that I am the Lord your God. Can any of you see ways that you would argue against such a use of that passage? Have to quit eating bread. Absolutely. If he can use abstinence from alcohol to assure a closer walk with God, he'd have to condemn the use of bread. In fact, he'd have to condemn absolute spiritual blindness. Look at verse 4. The Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day for those 40 years in the wilderness so that you might know that the Lord is your God today see God kept wine milk water he gave them water on occasion and other food from those Israelites and sustained them supernaturally for 40 years to teach them dependence upon the Lord their God he didn't keep wine from them to assure a closer walk with him he kept wine and bread and fed them with manna so that they would have to rely upon him for 40 years in spite of their stubbornness. You all see that. You'd have to condemn bread if you could condemn wine in any way from this passage. One more, and we'll close this evening. Judges chapter 13. This is a beauty. Judges chapter 13. You say, Pastor, this is so ridiculous. I'll bet you made this pamphlet up and put another man's name on it. And you're, gi- <laughs> and you're guilty of libel. Judges chapter 13, we have Samson's mother. Now let's read this man's commentary. Samson's mother, an example of all womanhood. Would you please tell me where he came up with that idea? Samson's mother, an example of all womanhood, was commanded not to drink. Was alcohol recognized even then as a protoplasmic poison injuring posterity? Let's read about this mother of Samson. In verses 2 and 3, her name is given, the fact that the angel appeared to her and said, Thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, verse 4, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Now, this woman was commanded to be a Nazarite while Samson was in her womb because Samson was going to be a perpetual Nazarite. What else did the Nazarite vow include? What else did the Nazarite vow include? Remember, we covered it in Numbers chapter 6. Couldn't eat any product of the vine, including raisins. Are raisins a protoplasmic poison, injuring posterity? are moist grapes, a protoplasmic poison, injuring posterity. She couldn't have any of those things. Listen to what the man said. Samson's mother, an example of all womanhood, that's totally his assumption. Nowhere in the Word of God are we told that Samson's mother is an example of anything. She's Samson's mother. That's all we're told about Samson's mother. We go with what the Bible teaches was commanded not to drink. She was also commanded not to eat raisins. Look at verse 14. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. She couldn't eat raisins. Now this man says, was alcohol recognized even then as a protoplasmic poison, injuring posterity? Why, no it wasn't, and it still isn't, in anyone who's got any sanity remaining after covering the first eight examples of this man's use of the Word of God. Why did I give you this this evening? I want you to appreciate the Bible you hold in your hands and the ability that you have, if you're able to read, if you're able to read and if you're able to listen, to see through the resting of Scripture that is performed by men today who call themselves pastors and preachers. I want you to have a tool to go to those that you have not known exactly how to bring up an issue with before and bring up an issue like this. But I want to remind you of one thing and it's going to be covered in detail next Sunday evening and that is the limitations upon your use of wine. The Bible certainly does give us some limitations not to abuse our liberty. And when you go to someone, you don't go trying to force them to drink, convince them to drink, or talking about the fact that you do drink. All you do is deal with this single issue. Is it scriptural? to lay a standard or a rule upon men that they cannot touch an alcoholic beverage, and then use this pamphlet, or use any other pamphlet, and use the Word of God to show that the Word of God blows away all the fog, if it is read and used. Now you are able to take those first eight examples and read them, I hope. Wine has never caused drunkenness anymore. Then a gun causes murder. Now the socialists in this nation want to take away your guns because guns cause murder. Murder has existed for a long time, my friends, before guns came along. Don't you make the same error and let someone slip that assumption in on you. But wine leads to drunkenness. Will women lead to adultery? Should it be a male sex on this planet? No, that would lead to sodomy. Should we get rid of animals? That would lead to bestiality. Do away with the universe, because it leads to idolatry. Do you see the insanity of that kind of reasoning? Wine is a good thing created by God. So is the woman, so is the man, so are animals, so is property, so are the stars. God hath made man upright, but he hath sought out many inventions. It's the abuse of a thing that makes it evil, and that all flows from man's heart. It doesn't flow from the outside in. It flows from the inside out. Love your Bibles. Take time to read them. If this, in a way, stimulates you to look up these other references and have a little fun with your Bible and thank God for writing His Bible the way He did and for taking the wise in their own foolishness and turning them into fools, then God be praised. There's been some profit from this this evening. Amen.